Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good evening and thank you very much for coming this evening. We're very lucky actually, we've got such a mix of talent. We've got an architect, a sculptor, an art critic, a historian and a curator, so we cover the kind of gamut, I think, uh, of the disciplines involved in public art. And we're going to start with Eric Parry, who's an RA, um, recently on Newsnight, if you saw him, defending his tall building. Eric, I think, is really renowned for his cultural projects and is one of, I would say, a few um, architects who really works with artists in in his work. And if you haven't seen already, there are two great pieces um, very nearby. Um, In Savile Row, there's a piece by Joel Shapiro on one of his projects, a a cornice by Richard Deacon at One Eagle Place on Piccadilly, Um, an apple tree yard, which is part of St James's Square, so not that far away. Eric has worked with Stephen Cox. In addition to his work as in Eric Parry's practice, which is Eric Parry Architects, uh, they never can really come up with names that are, are a bit different. Eric is a former chairman of the Royal Academy Architecture Committee, um, puts in a lot of time and effort, I think, in the service of architecture, has worked on the Kettle Yards Committee as well, and many, many others. He was elected RA in 2006 um, and is also an honor, has an honorary degree. Um, from the arts from the University of Bath. I think that's probably enough, but you've got heaps more accolades there. I'll hand you over to Eric. Eric. Sarah, thank you. What I was going to say was that I don't want to confuse the issue of art and architecture. They're very separate disciplines, but there's a very strong echo. The image that I was going to show was simply the image of some facades that I think uh, owe a great deal in my mind to the work of great sculptors. So in working with materials such as metals in stainless steel on one project and uh, a painted surface in another, or indeed in weathering steel on another, I'm kind of echoing sculptors' work in the sense that one's alert to the enterprise and the extraordinary creativity that has been part of the passage through sculpture. It extends to stone, extends obviously to ceramics and so on. So there's a very strong dialogue, not literal or immediate, but there's an echo. That's one side is, uh, is, is um, an important aspect of this. The other was I was uh, evoking through the Bernini sculpture in the Piazza Minerva in Rome, a sort of set against the Pantheon, a thought um, that if public art was taken away from us, we would lose an incredible sense of the litmus of cultural palimpsest, a sort of a moment in time, great work uh, stands the test of time, and rubs uh, shoulders very well with the everyday. It's just that sort of sense of what we would do without. So I will just go back to this great image, and indeed back to some of the elevations that I was just referencing, which have a haptic and, uh, I hope, a sort of sense of weight and drama that sculpture is capable of. So the other aspect of great public art, in my mind, is that it is an offering of a most sublime kind. Um, uh, You know, it can be temporary, it can be permanent. I think in this respect of the the wrapping project of the Reichstag of of Christo and Jean-Claude, which became the most spectacular, after 20 years of struggle, obviously, before unification, it became the representative event and party and memory of a great party that celebrates that coming together. 
I think is a you know, phenomenal project and many, many levels. Um, installation work, temporary work, does something profound for memory, so uh, art and memories. To this little project in Piccadilly, uh, which was really about the reconfiguration of a part of a, of, of a square, a renovation of it, in fact. Obviously, there's loss when you do something new, um, and one needs to be very mindful of the setting. But I think art is about raising the game beyond that which we as architects can manage. I always say that, in a way, the architect starts from the pavement and, with luck, meets the artist who is working from above, you know, somewhere. And the corners <laughs> with Richard was a very good meeting point. Um, which was a competition, and so, so it actually, it, for us both, it was, uh, and the teams, it was incredibly important in the sense that it's a contribution to the street. I think in this instance, it was about drawing a material as a common ground in ceramic, um, in order that Richard's Corners could be a celebration, but out of one body, rather than the application of a piece of sculpture onto a piece of architecture. That's something that I believe can be very, very significant if it works as a dialogue. So uh, I love this image um, because behind the um, struggle and everything one just takes for granted, um, I walked past it tonight. It, it gave me a very great pleasure to see that uh, color there, which was the intention. He came to call it Piccadilly. Um, but the, something that looks very simple is in fact the result of an extraordinary struggle, not in, just in terms of the size of some of these ceramic pieces, which are, are Belfast sinks on steroids, and the company that made them makes Belfast sinks, um, but also the application of color from the artist's marks to this, through pottery, through a tradition of transfer, you know, uh, through kilns, balancing failures, because that's very much part of ceramic, to get it to the point that it sits there so um, easily um, is it's also with like the act of building something that's incredibly difficult to achieve I believe and really requires dialogue and a kind of working together and then finally uh, to this truly sublime um, art piece uh, working through the body of architecture and uh, I, I would just you know um, uh, this, is, this is a piece that, um, after all the work of kind of reorganizing, reconfiguring re elements of St. Martin in the Fields, um, anyone walking into the church, this is the one thing they will remember. Um, uh, Shirazi, Hushiari, and Pip Horn's fantastic east window. Blown away is the terrible state of the church before. We, we, we started to, um, to re reconfigure, redecorate it. But this, uh, by uh, essentially, you know, an Iranian uh, woman uh, representing the, this church um, that is the church of the ever-open door in one sense, but also a very hierarchical representation of, of the country, to create this ecumenical but also highly... Um, structured work with beautiful marking in such, a, in such a way that works between the secular and the sacred from inside to outside seems to me to be a very, very poignant reminder of how just how sublime and powerful art 
in architecture, with architecture, can be. Thank you very much. So Conrad Shawcross is going to talk next, who's also RA, and probably one of the youngest RAs, I would have. Is that correct? Uh, yes. There have been lots of younger RK RAs over the years. I mean, I think I'm, I'm pushing 40, and I think when the RA was founded, 40 was pretty, pretty ancient. Well, yeah, yeah. So, um, Life expectancies, yeah. So I'm pretty archaic in terms of old, old values. But um, I was just going to race through um, a few, a few slides. I mean, sort of in terms of the sort of, I, I think there is a real distinction between my practice when I'm doing, making work on a more private or a more or sort of gallery scale than the way I approach um, the public realm. And I suppose that one of the first thing I would divide the public realm into two things is like civic sculpture and public sculpture. Public sculpture is ones which I, I feel is very much, the, and which is the contemporary idea of public sculpture, is one that is about immersement and approach and sort of entering into something and just, and that, that and that a, a, a real sort of, almost like a surrendering of one's ego in terms of looking at the constraints, the problems, the, the demographics of the people who look at it. All of these, it's a very, there's a very democratic side to it and the ideas are not just driven by the ego of the artist, that they come from the constraints and the, the restrictions and the problems of a, of a particular space or a particular <coughs> building or a, and they are, and they, they, the ideas would never come without those constraints being forced upon you. So there are, there's a real subservience in, a, in an architectural way to those, to those criterias. Um, this was a piece called Space Trumpet. It was my first public commission. It's a piece called Space Trumpet where I was, and it's in Unilever House, and I was given this envelope of nine metres by nine metres by nine metres, and I was told they wanted something moving in the space, and it was going to be there for 20 years, and so it was a real problem in terms of maintenance and schedule. And, but I was sort of really one of the, one of the kind of, so it was a lot of things were really driving those things, so I couldn't take it down. I, so how, how can you make something that's moving or transient that will last 20 years? So that led to the idea of this thing moving at, at midday, it moves to a new position silently and then stays there till the, the following day. And there's like 50 different settings, so it's sort of, when you're sitting at your desk, it's always, there's a slow, gradual change to the piece. It doesn't block the view. Hopefully the palette is complementary to the thing, to the building, and so there's all those sorts of ideas in it, but there's also, there's a conceptual idea that was very personal as well. It's all about the first radio telescope um, and this sort of the idea of the first um, evidence of the Big Bang. And so there was all these, <laughs> these things. So then the radio telescopes and sort of um, sound mirrors being the first way we could sonically see. So this idea of seeing blindly. And so it's a real, real sort of metaphor for, for kind of the sort of human condition or science in general, how we infer ingeniously things that we'll never see with our eyes. So there's a real sort of formal element to a, to a piece, and, but there's also a conceptual element. But there is... Again, and, and then these, these, this submissive thing where you are, you're very, um, you are very subservient to the constraints of the building, and it has to be very, and to the people who occupy it. I mean, if you, if the, one of the nicest things about this is when I go there and the security guards, I go there to see the piece, the security guards come up to me and say, ah, oh, Mr. Shawcross, we, and they, they've taken ownership of it, and they really said, we love this work, and every time someone asked about it, they, um, they are the ones who, uh, they, they tell the story and they re they've taken ownership of it. If you haven't got that, if you haven't won that heart and mind, it's sort of almost, they're the ones who, anyway, they're the ones who mean the most to me in a way, that if you can win that kind of favour or that kind of um, uh, sort of um, opinion, it's really important. Um, this is another one called um, Fraction, which is in Oxford Science Park, uh, that was a commission in, sorry, in Magdalen Science Park through Modus Operandi. 
And uh, this is a, it's, again, it was very formally around this T-shaped building and leading someone into this quite, kind of quite stark space. So it's this sort of, it's very formal about the rights of, of sort of passageways through a space. But again, it's driven by sort of very key sort of ideas and preconcept, uh, sort of pre, um, uh, sort of preoccupations within the work to do with ratio and number and geometry and music. And there's this uh, big aluminium piece that I mean, like a sort of whale from the ceiling. Um, and then these are the pieces um, in Dulwich Park called Three Perpetual Chords, which I guess would, would be the, way I, the piece that really defines, I think, this idea between the civic and the uh, public. And these ones are, are very much about, sort of the minute you see them, about approach and immersement and play and tactility. Whereas I, I would regard civic sculptures, it's all about trying to stop people climb them, creating some sort of totemic thing, but it's about security, it's about longevity, about vandalism. There's all this stuff about having th these huge blocks as they sit on, all about trying to stop people touching them or going near them. There is an austerity to them, which is a sort of old-fashioned thing, which I think is very... So I would call that so what I would say is civic, and then there's the sort of public, which is, which is this new wave of stuff, which is about that interplay and, and, and uh, public ownership. So these pieces are very much... We're about to sort of trying to make people climb on them, and they've sort of become very successful for the under sevens. They're uh, they are, they are <laughs> definitely won that vote. Where they sort of there's all at any one moment there's about ten kids on each one of them, um, and um, yeah, and they were a real homage to because they they are as it says in the sort of text they're, they're quite a rare um, uh, sort of go, uh, Southwark Council commissioned them, uh, and it was um, and through the Contemporary Art Society. But, they, um, but it was a very rare uh, sort of of late public commission because they, it was from the insurance money from this Hepworth loss. So while I was also having to make, um, which was stolen for scrap metal, so while I was um, also trying to make a peep for the, in the public domain, I was always having to also make a work that paid respect or homage to Hepworth. So these pieces are sort of based on holes, and so they have this, this idea of immersement. And I think Hepworth is one of those, an artist who doesn't get enough credit for the fact that she's the first artists to create that really um, clear idea inviting people into <coughs> the void. I think, um, yeah, a lot, a lot of contemporary artists, Kapoor owes her a huge debt for the fight, this idea of immersement and entering into the void of a piece and that sense of an installation is sort of really put, was sort of conceived by her. Um, this is a piece you may have seen in the courtyard here called Dappled Light of the Sun and it, the, the title refers to the shadow and it was a, basically to draw draw people underneath it and recreate that idea of a, of a summer's day and that sort of complex shadows placed on the floor. And it was made of 24,000 triangles and it's a huge piece that's been on, on a few places around England recently. So this is in Chatsworth House in the summer. There's three of them on the front lawn. Uh, and then in, the, in the, the sculpture park at Freeze. And again, it's very much about sort of minimal footprint and by, you can sit underneath it, have your picnic, uh, it's very sort of. Um, it's supposed to be a very sort of um, kind of have utility as well as um, just um, beauty. Um, and then a completely different sort of approach is another final piece to show you. Is just this. Um, this is a, a really different way. I worked in a more architectural way as a sort of visual consultant. This was a 50 meter high black box with smoke coming out of the top of it. Um, and the count and they. Um, this developed is basically a low carbon energy centre and the council came to, not council, sorry, the developer came to see me and said, we want to have an artwork on the side of this black box. And I think all the other people in the competition were, were putting big artworks on the side and, or, or LED screens, but it was trying, basically the building's intent was to try and save 
carbon. And I, my um, design was a bit risky and radical, but it was to remove the entire black box and the steel frame, and we replaced it with this very light, uh, much more efficient steel frame with this um, this uh, this perforated panels, which creates this thing called the Moray effect. So it's this basically it's a disruptive skin that basically um, that sort of optically sort of shifts and moves when you um, when you move around it. So it's on the A12, so you pan around it, and it basically the sun sets behind it in front of it, and it's um, it's just basically a sort of disruptive skin that, that camouflages it, is it yet yet makes it quite arresting. Um, and so there's just some variety of different approaches to sort of public realm work that I'm doing. I mean, there is a certain irony, isn't there, really, to the fact that Comrade's done that piece, uh, Three Perpetual Chords, which is, you could say, a memorial to lost public art, which is probably the only one that there is. It's a very sad, but a, a wonderful kind of uh, legacy for the park. Thank you very much for that. I think that point about civic versus public is very important, and I think um, that's something we maybe come back to when we have our discussion at the end. I'd like to hand over now to Ele uh, Eleanor Pinfield, who's head of Art on the Underground. Eleanor is a curator. Um, and was at the Tate before she came to Art in the Underground. Um, and, and I think, you know, who can, who can deny that Transport for London had been the most important uh, commissioner of public art for over 100 years? I mean, London would be uh, a far less exciting place than uh, without it. I mean, if you haven't been to the exhibition, there is a Mark, the Mark Wallinger Labyrinth <coughs> is on show there. And, you know, I hadn't noticed them before. Um, we started working on this project, and now you know, they're at every station, and, it, and now I can't stop noticing them. I think it's wonderful. A whole range of very subtle pieces, but enormous pieces as well, like the Jacqueline Ponsolet wrapper, which is the whole um, Edgware Road electricity substation that is literally wrapped in what is the largest vitreous enamel artwork in Europe. So um, Transport for London works on all sorts of scales. Over to you, Eleanor. We do. Thank you very much. So I think that was a great introduction because I think I am often made almost every day in my job to justify what's the point of having an art programme within a transport system. And um, I think I would hope that this audience perhaps feels that there's a really strong argument for that. And it has created the most incredible emotional connection, I think, between Londoners and London Underground for, for over uh, 100 years. Um, the contemporary art programme, Art in the Underground, has been going since um, about 2000, so for the last 15, 15 or so years, 16 years. And, um, but we have a very strong legacy. The legacy is one thing, the precedent is one thing, but I think that emotional connection is really, really at the core of why it's so exciting to do art in a space that feels genuinely democratic and is used by everyone within the city. So I'm just going to make um, a few um, short points because there's a lot of things that we could say. I mean, I think when we look at the historic precedents within London Underground, since really the 20s, um, uh, Charles Holden in particular, who was an architect who worked very closely in the kind of British modernism, started working with sculptors um, quite wonderfully, including that, that work there, which is Jacob Epstein, um, which forms part of St. James's Park Station at 55 Broadway, London <coughs> Underground's historic headquarters. So from the 20s, you have a commitment really within the, the power of art within this um, municipal space. With Epstein, there's also Henry Moore, Eric Gill, that surrounds that building. Um, a real statement. And it, again, it, it sort of, there were some stop starts really through the um, 50s and 60s, but we get a, get a very huge commitment to public art within the uh, 80s. You've got Robin Denny there, whose works are at Embankment Station, um, and Eduardo Palozzi's, whose works are at Tottenham Court Road, um, which has, of course, got, undergone a huge um, restoration and remodeling project recently, um, which has 
brought to the fore very difficult questions in terms of how you manage major public artworks within spaces that have to change. I think everyone within London would feel that London Underground would always be there, but we're also all aware London Underground would always be changing to deal with the city that we live in now. And Tottenham Court Road, of course, has now been hugely expanded and very necessarily expanded, um, which did bring up really complex issues. And one of those issues was that the um, arch sections of the mosaics were, were um, taken out of the station and now with Edinburgh College of Art. Whilst the remaining sections have undergone a pretty phenomenal restoration project and repair project and are looking really fantastic for any of you who have gone through the station recently. I'm sure the topic will come up later, so I'll move uh, on for now. But to talk a little about Art on the Underground um, programme, I think I just wanted to think a little about um, what, how, how, what is the approach to art in public space. Um, and indeed, the programme began really doing temporary commissions, which I think has given it its um, perhaps more experimental bent rather than only doing works within a sort of traditional architectural permanent format. And I think this um, Gloucester Road platform is where the um, programme really um, started. And I think seeing the variety of approaches there that Arts and the has taken with different artists, including Cindy Sherman there on the, on the um, top left, Brian Griffiths, who does sculptural work, with David Batchelor working with um, light and shadow and illumination, current work that's on the show by Trevor Paglin, an American artist who's done a sort of um, huge uh, panoramic landscape photograph in the sort of uh, mode of the English landscape painters, which also features a CIA listening base in the centre of it from Menneth Hill in um, Yorkshire. I think they're quite um, exciting works and it's really interesting to think about duration and how long one might want this kind of a work to be in the public, um, public domain. And I think having work, having the ability to show exciting works like this for a year, 18 months, that kind of duration is, is a really um, wonderful way of thinking about things. I mean, the programme's also done conceptual projects with no object at all. And I think that, again, with a sort of fixed environment that we have of the underground, it is a social space, the underground. Art practice is not confined to the um, physical. And being able to deliver projects with Jeremy Della, for example, where he got uh, train drivers to read out quotes um, for a prolonged period on the Piccadilly line to everyone. Um, and Michael Landy, who was really developed looking, wanting to examine um, social interaction in that space by getting people to talk about acts of kindness that they observed on the underground and report those back. Are two sort of interesting examples there. Um, which isn't to say that the programme doesn't do what might be considered to be the more traditional um, permanent artworks of um, uh, integrated within architectural structures. And... Um, I think this is really important to maintain Transport for London's commitment to developing more of these incredible permanent artworks across London, which will be here for generations to come. So we have Knut Henrik Henriksen there on the top left, um, with a, a very ar beautiful architectural work at King's Cross. Um, Jacques, uh, Jacqueline Poncelet that Sarah mentioned on the right. John Main, uh, RA here, um, by Green Park Station that you can see as you leave, if there's a little bit of light. And a new work by Daniel Boren um, at Tottenham Court Road in the upper layer, which is just... Um, being delivered this year. And we are committed to developing more long-term permanent um, projects which will be coming in the next few years. Um, and Mark Wallinger's project, I think, is an extremely innovative approach to how you can consider public art in space. Mark was asked to um, create a work to celebrate 150 years and created 270 individual artworks across London, one in every single station, and I think is a very um, innovative challenge to what public art can be. Very briefly, I, just, I was asked a little to think about what's the future of public art and how can it challenge um, contemporary art practice. And I think, you know, we <coughs> talk about video art. Video art is obviously not new in um, 
contemporary art practice, but to think about how you might represent that in public space, I think is a, is a really interesting discussion. We, for the first time, um, towards the end of last year, commissioned a video work only for the escalator panels, which sits between the real advertising that you see thrown at you constantly all day long on London Underground, and work with um, Benedict Drew, a really wonderful artist that often works in video, to create this work, Do Retouch, which um, is only eight seconds. So talking about constraints, there's a hell of a lot of constraints on um, an artist working in that way. But to challenge digital media around us, I think, is a really important part of the debate around what public art should be about, um, how we m maintain our relevancy. Um, almost at the other end of the spectrum, I'll just show you another project we're working on right now, which is with artist Giles Round, which is to create tiles, which is a very traditional London Underground kind of thing to do. But Giles has created um, an incredible kind of palette of tiles that we're using along the Victoria line and it's really it's almost like a sort of anti-Palozzi approach it's taking small level interventions across a huge amount of space across a whole cut of London we're intending to install these across all 16 stations on the Victoria line this is Black Horse Road station um, up near the north end but it will soon be more tiles and other stations along the line <coughs> and although ceramics is quite a fashionable thing right now I think actually taking something small and seeing how you can integrate it in public space in this way um, is exciting, and we've also done a larger piece outside the station with Giles, if you're <coughs> passing, that's just gone up in the last couple of weeks. Amazing <coughs> selection of work there. Thank you very much, Helena. Um, our penultimate speaker is Emma Crichton-Miller, who is an art critic, journalist and writer, and a columnist for Apollo magazine, which um, is my new favourite magazine because they gave us a lovely review, so thank you very much for that. Um, she also writes for How to Spend It magazine. I'm afraid I don't read that one because I never have anything to spend. Um, but she has written many catalogue essays on art, including an essay on, for the catalogue of the Ai Weiwei exhibition at Blenheim Palace, um, and also on Edmund Duval and the stained glass artist Tom Denny. I was asked to address the question of, in the post-war era, public art was considered a distinct form of artistic practice. Is this still the case now? And I thought that there would probably be a room full of people who had very clear ideas about what public art was, what its distinct practice was. So I thought I might ask some other people, general public members. And they came up with all sorts of ideas. Well, is Banksy public art? Is... Uh, Nick Fidian Green's Stillwater public art is, they all agreed, the fourth plinth was public art. Is Assemble's Turner prize-winning piece public art? Is their practice public art? Is Kate Malone's ceramic surface to the building at the end of Savile Row public art? So I think there is great spread of ideas about what public art is amongst the general public reflected in these responses? Is it just art in the public domain? Should public art be recognised to have a, a, a distinct funding source? Should it be funded publicly? Is it funded in the interests of the general public? Is it deliberately there to engage a public? Um, and is, the, is it enough simply for public art to enrich the environment? Or does it need to address social issues or political issues? Does it need to come with a whole panoply of values and um, expectations surrounding it? And I think you've heard enough tonight from the various members of the panel that there seems to be all sorts of different ideas about what public art should do. And then I suppose a final question is who, who decides? Is it the artist who decides what the relationship of the artwork is to the public? Or is it the, is it the commissioner? Um, and I think that uh, 
we're all agreed that there are these projects that are labelled, so the 14 to 18 now projects, for instance, we recognise that these are works that are created to engage with the public directly and that as a general public we should have a particular relationship towards them and that part of our judgment of them has to do with assessing how they have addressed that task. But then there are other pieces of art, like for instance, there is uh, Hamish Mackey has just done six bronze horses leaping through Goodman Fields, which is for a private development in the, the centre of the City of London. But that work too will engage with the public. What is our relationship to that? And I thought that those might be some of the questions that we could uh, uh, address tonight, is how, how the art practice today <coughs> involves all sorts of different relationships to the public and also complicates the way that we respond to them and judge them depending upon the intention behind the artwork and the way that the public then receives this artwork and considers their own relationship towards it. I suppose it was a complicating contribution. No, that, that's, a, that's a, at least ten different questions there that I, I think we can debate later. So thank you very much, Emma. I mean, I think certainly a lot of that came up when we were doing the exhibition, how very much uh, the practice has changed. It, it, that art in the public realm in the 50s was very much about a piece just appearing with little engagement with the public in terms of its uh, creation or discussion about what might be suitable or actually even relating to the stories or the place. Um, uh, so I think that question about how that practice has changed um, and what is the difference between art in the public realm and public art is, um, I think, one that we'd certainly... There, there was one final quote, though, which, which I felt was important, and I, in fact, drew that from your exhibition, which was Brian Neal's quote about, it seems to me that unless sculptors are given the opportunity to exhibit and work in a public arena, and I suppose I would substitute for the word sculptors, artists more generally in all sorts of media, the whole concept of art becomes relegated to a purely minority occupation accessible to fewer and fewer people. And that seemed to me to ring very true yeah. for many artists, the sense that that is what holds public art together, that desire to engage. No, I, I, I think, so. I mean, there isn't, a, there isn't an artist I haven't had a conversation with, um, you know, Gormley says exactly the same thing, as if it's, a, if it's in an art gallery, it's, it's not relevant an, anymore. It needs to be out um, in that public realm in some way. So I, I, think, I think certainly that's uh, one of the things that we should be talking about. How do you the different dialogues that are possible and the different opportunities as well. Thank you for that. I mean, that's a, you've asked the question about whether Banksy would ever, um, is public art. I mean, we should ask Roger whether Banksy would ever be listed. Um, Roger Bowdler, our final speaker, he's the director of listing at Historic England, which used to be English Heritage, if you're, if you're wondering, and had a kind of name change um, last year, and that's partly the reason for doing the exhibition. He joined what was English Heritage in 1989, which means in three years' time, he's eligible for listing himself, because um, you have to be 30, at least 30 years old. You, darling. <laughs> Grade one star, I certainly think, for, for him. Ancient monument. <laughs> and he's worked as a listings inspector and has a designation. He worked his way up through the ranks. Um, he is back, his background is in art history, um, and he completed a PhD on, I have to say this because I love it, 17th century English church monuments and memento mori iconography. 
Um, but actually, he's a lot more interesting than he sounds. Um, and he was, until recently, chairman of the Mausolea and Monuments Trust. And it's his responsibility to look at what, what should be recommended to government, and not only in art, obviously, everything from, um, from architecture to landscape as well. So over to you, Roger. What is the future of public art? Mm, well, I'll come round to that. Um, yeah, as Sarah says, um, we, we sprung fully formed from the flank of English heritage. And what, what we exist to do is advise the government and make sure that the best of the past goes into the future. And you know, you all know how fast the pace of change is right now. Our job is to try and make sure that the, the really important stuff gets protected through the planning system, but it's the, the, the real way to make sure that the best survives is through the engagement of owners and local authorities. And of course, at the moment, it's a difficult time with local authority cutbacks. So it's, it's easy to start knocking local authorities as not prioritising art. Well, the thing I would like to stress is these are, these are hard times for people engaged in the public sector. Now, this here listing business, this is one of the clearest ways of making sure protection's in place. That's what listing is. Um, and when the exhibition opened last month, we could also... Last month? This month? When was it? This month. This month. Yeah. Just feels History, like you month. see, is yeah. the speed of change. <coughs> um, we added 41 post-war public sculptures to the tally of about 80-odd post-war sculptures that are already listed. Um, so we've we got round about 120 or so. Um, and there are many, many more on buildings that are listed like Coventry Cathedral, absolute treasury of post-war art. Um, the Time Life Building by, with the Henry Moore Relief on, on Bond Street. Or that incredible programme of post-war schools, Hertfordshire, say. Um, go to the Barclay School in Stevenage by YRM. It's Henry Moore sitting in the middle, the family of man. Incredible generosity of spirit around the creation of the post-war built realm. Um, listing's been pretty good about spotting sculptures and public, public works of art of note. Um, in fact, the youngest grade one building for ages was that monument in Highgate Cemetery to Karl Marx by um, Lawrence Bradshaw. And that was the youngest, the youngest listed, listed post-war item for ages. And listing's about two things. It's about special interest. So it's not about the vaguely curious. It's got to be special, and that is a test. And the more recent, the higher the threshold to meet that test. And the specialness is in two, two varieties, historic and architectural. And that's really a shorthand architectural for visual in many ways. How can we describe a statue, a bronze statue, Charles I on horseback as architecture? It's kind of visual. So, um, but the lawyers don't mind us doing that. Um, one post-war sculpture got listed when it was like six, six years old. So um, nowadays we've got a 30 year rule. It's got to be 30 years unless it's really under threat and really special. Um, that was um, Freda Brilliant's Mahatma Gandhi statue in Tavistock Square. Six years old when it's listed in 1974. Those were the days. Um, there are, however, you know, we can't be smug about the numbers of, of post-war monuments and sculptures we've listed. If we said there are a couple of hundred, maybe, all told, there are actually 377,000 entries on the National Heritage List for England. So... It's not exactly a dominant genre. We've much more to do. But I would say it's load more than in any other country that I know of. Um, the challenge of public art, it's out there. It's out there. That is in itself one of the challenges. And that means it's vulnerable. 
is vulnerable to assault, to theft. It's also vulnerable to contempt. It's not in the curated cocoon of the gallery. So that is one of the big challenges. But it's also the joy. The joy of the public art is it, it's exactly that. It's out there, enriching the public realm. And that generosity of spirit is, I think, really super important. That's why we should all be bothered about its fate and encourage new buildings, the best buildings, to be enriched in that way too. Now, what can Historic England bring to it? Well, we can protect the best ones, ensure they stay in situ, or help make sure that the right conversations happen if sculpture is being changed. We want to give local authorities clarity. Where do they stand? And prevent things like the, the old flow hokey-cokey. Is it in Bethnal Green or is it not? Is it in a sculpture park or is it not? Is it someone else's? Is it Tower Hamlet's? Let people know and make sure they're protected. Um, and I, would, I, I need to pay huge tribute to Sarah for helping put that exhibition on. We, we knew it was an issue and we knew the listing would help. But to get a public exhibition and a programme of events linked to it, and a wonderful, handsome exhibition too, that's, um, and put on in five months, that's pretty special in this world. Um, hooray for Sarah. Now, this here listing, that's actually a post-war thing. It comes from the same generation as national parks, free school milk, um, the National Health Service. It's part of the 1940s response to how you can make a post-war society better for its citizens. I think that optimism of the post-war period is actually mirrored, I think, in the contemporary dialogue, the discourse about public realm. That sense that it is there to be shared, and we need to invest in that and enrich lives. So I think listing's got a real role to play there. It isn't just about the public realm, though. And one of the, one of the, the real stars of the exhibition is that out of private commercial patronage. And there's no better example for my money than John Lewis's paying for Barbara Hepworth to put up the winged figure, 1963, to enliven, to brighten up the misery of a commercial stroll down Oxford Street. Bless them. And there's a sort of modern equivalent too, which is when um, Stuart Lipton was developing Broadgate in the 1980s, a very different approach, but you know, bringing in works like Richard Serra's Fulcrum. Quite special. Um, now, what can we list? We can't list things if they're on loan. So if an owner has put something up there and lent it to the public realm, we can't list it. It's not fixed, so we can't go there. So there will always be some sculptures we cannot list. What we can do these days is list parts of a building. Um, this, this kicked off, the, pre the pre pretext for this premise for this kicked off when the 20th century society, who were very important watchdogs here, um, got us to list the Elizabeth Frink Desert Quartet in Worthing. Um, that was installed in 1989, listed to 2007. He was the only one to take it down. He had built the shopping centre, enlivened by the Frink busts. That time for them to come down. We didn't feel so. Another rather sad example is the removal of the Paolozzi um, self-portrait as Hephaestus of 1987 from Hoban. Lots of you will know that postmodern building that used to have that rather handsome self-portrait. It ain't there anymore. If you want to get planning permission for a building like that, frankly, we really think it ought to stay. That's one of the reasons that building's going to be erected. Let's make sure the enrichment stays rather than being prized off. And that's where listing can kick in. What might be listed in the future? One of the things I was asked to do, I've touched on Richard Serra's fulcrum. 1987, that was installed. I think it's a surefire shoe-in to be listed. But there is this 30-year rule. Um, it needs to be under threat for the more recent stuff. 
And one I'm really looking forward to honouring through listing is the Michael Sandel, St George and the Dragon at uh, KPMG's headquarters in um, Blackfriars. Amazing thing. So, um, I really like this inclusion of public art in my world, the world of heritage, cultural management, they call it, which is too often a world about planning squabbles. The idea of being enriched by culture is a profound boost to my system and my organisations. At its best, and it isn't always at its best, let's be honest, public art is enrichment. It's generosity of the spirit made manifest in the public realm. Examples make it onto this will always be exceptional. We are quite picky, but we're absolutely committed to make sure the best of the future gets on there and listing goes on helping protect. Brilliant, thank you. I mean, that, I think that leads us very neatly onto a, maybe a conversation. Um, we'll um, kick off maybe with a couple of, uh, I'll ask a couple of questions of the panel. Um, Eric very, has worked with so many artists and, and maybe the knack of making sure that the work stays is that they're so totally integrated that you actually can't prize them off. So, um, but uh, Eric, when we were talking about this, um, about doing this uh, panel, you were the architect that came to mind you know, immediately. Um, are, why do so few architects work in the same way that you do? Um, is it partly about clients, or is it you know, that architecture is an art, and maybe you know, is an artwork in itself and needs no embellishment? Why have you taken the approach that you have on so many, work, on so many of your projects? Well, not all of them, obviously. But. Uh, well, I find it difficult to sort of rationalise that. It just is instinct. But it is, it is set against um, exactly that. There, there was, in the high-tech kind of world uh, of the machine and the machine-made product, um, famously in a number of um, well-known authors' cases, you know, would the response was rather arrogantly, well, why art? The building is the art. And uh, that seems to me an extraordinarily anti urban idea. It's the idea of the object, of the autonomous object, self-sufficient. Uh, whereas I, th I think that uh, this question, <clears throat> I take a, you know, a view uh, that uh, yeah, at, at its most informal, graffiti is, a, is an act of embellishment, that ornament is no crime. Um, it is entirely dependent on, on the narrative that the architecture is capable of supporting. Um, and it is art that is capable of lifting that dialogue with the public and the, you know, the public sphere uh, to another level. So it is, it is really an instinctive thing, apart from the fact that I've been quite close to a number of artists. So, I mean, one, one needs... I, you know, it's actually... I do think, um, uh, I, you know, as a student sharing... Um, sharing a space with uh, uh, Kurt Schwitter's uh, Mertzbahn in Newcastle was incredibly important. I do think that architecture schools that are part of a, you know, a, a visual arts <coughs> context with a, a department of visual arts is something very, very precious. Um, again, something under threat. Mm. <laughs> but, you know, that, that's where the instinct probably starts. So it's, yeah, it's partly about the education. Yeah, the Mertz, I think so. And the Mertz barn is uh, got severely damaged in, uh, I can't remember which, which woman it, or man it, the latest storm was named after, Rhonda or something, I think. We're, did you know that, that the Mertz barn um, I didn't know it had been seriously damaged. Da damaged mm. which is a, a, ter a terrible shame. Yeah. Conrad, do you feel that um, 
it's uh, healthy. Um, do you think that there is a, uh, that the future for your work in the public realm is 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 looking uh, bright and promising? And whom? How do you feel that your your working now might be different, or is, do you think it's different to some of the things that we talked about from the fifties and sixties, where the work sort of appeared, uh, was commissioned? Um, but not with the public in mind. I think it's that difference, as you were saying, about you're trying to make work that is for the public. But do you engage with the public within that yeah, I creation? Think so. I think so. I hope so. I mean, I, I think that I, I really the, I try and approach things in a very different way. The, a lot of the ideas are very similar, but they formally become very different, really in response to these to a myriad of different problems. Um, I mean, I hopefully, I, I, I've sort of, I've, I feel very grateful to it in lots of ways because I've, I've, I've created works I never would have thought of without being put inside that creative box. And so it's actually liberated me from some of the, ling the lexicons and the language that I was, sort of, that enabled me once, but maybe entrapped me as well. And so it gets you out of, out of the, the sort of normal, the sort of the envelope of which in which you work. And that, that I've, I've re I find that really exciting. So there is, a, I really, I have a real, Hopefully, I have. I really enjoy it. I enjoy the uncertainty of it and the challenge of it. Um, so it's um, uh, it's something I want to continue to do. And I like working on scale and on big scale and things. So um, I mean, it's yeah. I think it's. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of as we all know. There's a lot of development in London that is sort of that I'm that I'm sort of benefiting from as it being my city and things. But it's there is a real problem in that there is this one in Dulwich was a very rare. Moment where there was a there was insurance money, but there really isn't any. There isn't sort of much. There is a the, the demographic of, of commissioners is quite narrow. It's really, uh, I mean, and it's wonderful that there are a lot of these things happening. But it's there isn't. If things were to change, I mean, I, I don't I don't know how much, how how much opportunity that gives that to younger artists. I mean, I'm now, I'm no, I can no longer say that, and I have was given opportunities earlier on, but I don't know how. How closed off things are, and how how much opportunities there are for people to get onto that, onto those competitions and those things. And I think the other thing that I've been noticing is, that, which I'm slightly worried about, is that there is increasing number of of uh, kind of design groups who are who are sort of winning. Or, or most commissions now, there's there's a design group who who isn't a sort of singular artist with a singular vision, who are essentially professional. Designers who are working to in collaboration, you know, the think tank to sort of come up with briefs. But their their practice is is fine. It's great, but it's not. It's it's very very distinct from what it is to be the sort of lonely endeavor of the artist, and they and the artist can't necessarily compete that well against the the sort of armada of technology and 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 sort of um, kind of the way they can be, visualize information and come up with amazing CGI and the stuff. And it's I'm, I'm a bit worried about that as the sort of professionalization of art that is sort of creeping in quite a lot. It's just quite a lot of competition. There, there's, there's always one, two <coughs> who are on that, who are that sort of type of artist, but they're not artists, they're, they're designers. Artists. Okay. <laughs> I think we might know who you mean there. Um, uh, Emma, um, I think this, I, uh, when I interviewed Stuart Lipton, we talked about Broadgate and how amazing that commissioning was. I mean, he worked with Nick Sorota. He tried to create a kind of range of work um, in that place that would appeal to different people, so some uh, 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 different kind of scales, but, you know, quite monumental. I mean, we talked about the Richard Sarah, which is one of my favourite pieces, which does have immunity from listing at the moment, doesn't it? But the buildings were built around it, you know, that the, the, the piece of work is fundamental to the place. Um, 
and he was. He, I, I suggested to him that maybe that there was a, a change now where, where there's so much more about the temporary in public realm. And was that sort of a lack of uh, of guts in terms of the commissioning about wanting to be or being or money or scale and being able to commission um, permanent works, or whether it was just a uh, actually, the zeitgeist saying, "Well, we could commission things that are more challenging, perhaps, if they if they're only temporary." Um, and uh, well, indeed, like the fourth plinth, where I suppose if something creates a furore for a few years, that can stimulate public debate. And I suppose that way you also avoid the question of boredom and the question of ignoring, because as you point out, one of the difficulties that public art can face if it's permanent is that people stop paying attention to it or stop looking after it. But it was curious, when I was asked to think about my own experiences over a lifetime of, of public art, a number of them had in, I, I sort of went back to my childhood and I remembered statues. In other words, they were things that had been part of the physical realm, that were, were permanent, and which over many years had offered these little sort of... Um, black holes, I suppose, in the fabric of the built environment that allowed you access to history or to poetry or to some other world and which were permanently accessible in that way and that the, 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 the permanence, in fact, was, was part of them. And I do think that there is something to be said for continuing to commission permanent um, sculpture for the public realm or permanent murals or, or, or whatever in order to enable people to develop that kind of relationship with it rather than I, I was also struck by there was um, uh, the um, group in, in Bristol um, who have come up with um, an alternative uh, set of requirements for public art um, and um, they came up with one statement which is believe in the quiet unexpected encounter as much as the magic of the mass spectacle and I think that it's true that if you have a, a, a temporary artwork in a public space that that does create a great splash and great excitement but that for me over many years that quiet moment with a work that has been there for a while it also has tremendous value and it therefore that there is value to this day pushing forward into the future in commissioning permanent works. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.